Good morning. Our scripture this morning is from Isaiah 38, 1 through 6. In those days, Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death. And Isaiah, the prophet, the son of Amos, came to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Set your house in order, for you shall die, you shall not recover. Then Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord and said, Please, O Lord, remember how I have walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. Then the word of the Lord came to Isaiah. Go and say to Hezekiah, thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father, I have heard your prayer, I have seen your tears. Behold, I will add 15 years to your life. I will deliver you and this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria and will defend this city. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Uh, feel free to open in your Bible to Isaiah chapter 38 and pull out the sermon notes as well. Help you follow along. If you, um, if you open in your Bible, unless you're Andrew David Fickey and you left your Bible in my office. Um, <laughs> Do you need this? <laughs> if you guys don't know Andrew, he's one of our, our uh, pastoral interns this summer, and um, that mortified him, which is, which is why I wanted to do it. All right. Well, I wanted to thank uh, Operation Barnabas for being with us this morning. Um, it's been good to have them here this morning. They are a collection of high school students from around our Karis Fellowship, our denomination around the country, whose goal this summer is to encourage local churches like ours. So they helped with some outreach on uh, the Band on the Sand on July 3rd, and they'll be helping set up for VBS the next couple days here. So we're really grateful for their encouragement. If you see them on the way out, thank them for their ministry. They'll be very eager and happy to talk to you. Very happy. Well, um, today marks the halfway point through our year of the Bible together. So uh, we have, as we start July, we're, we're just tipping into the second half. So I'm curious uh, how you guys have been doing with that. So underneath your chair is a midterm evaluation. <laughs> it's 45 questions, long answer. Um, no, it's, it's not. That would be cool, but no. Um, but it is the midterm point. And so I, I would love for you to do some self-reflection of, What's the first half of this year been like for you? What's it been like to uh, think about the Old Testament maybe in a more systemic way than you have in a while? And maybe what's it been like to intentionally try to spend time reading the Bible on your own with God? Or maybe what's it been like to not read the Bible on your own with God? I mean, has that, what's that been like? Has that evoked feelings of guilt or of missing out on something or of loneliness or of a hunger for something? In this midpoint, it's maybe a good time to reevaluate. What, what do you want for the second half of the year with God? Um, some of you I know are, are behind a little bit or behind a lot. Maybe this is a good time to hit the reset button and say, you know what, I'll come back to the first half of the Bible in, in 2020, but, but for the second half, I'm going to try to keep up uh, with, with the second half of what we're doing. Or maybe it's time to reevaluate some of your habits. Like, this is what I've, I've wanted to be the sort of person who reads the Bible every day, but I haven't really had a plan for how I'm going to do that. So maybe time to reevaluate what are some habits and some time that you want to spend with God the second half of the year. Well, whatever the journey's been like, and I'd be happy to talk with you about that, I hope that uh, this has been a year for you to reflect on God's character and see who he truly is. This uh, week, we're going to be in the book of Isaiah, in chapter 38, thinking about what it means that Hezekiah 
was going to die if not for God's intervention. As you heard read a few minutes ago in the passage by Jamie, uh, today we're looking at a passage in the middle of Isaiah's book that examines how Hezekiah responds to hearing about his own mortality and how God changes Hezekiah's destiny. I've wondered throughout this week as we've been preparing the sermon, what I would have done if I was Hezekiah. Maybe you wondered, what, what would you do if you're Hezekiah and you heard you were going to die? Some of you maybe have been with people or, or um, with someone you love when they've gotten the progno- that, a prognosis from their doctor that they're going to die, that they're going to go on hospice. Some of you guys I know are in the medical profession or your therapists or chaplains, and you sit with people who are going through the end stages of life. And they've wrestled with this. As a pastor, I do this sometimes, and and I get to see so many different responses that people have when it comes to the fear of their own death. You know, some people respond with a lot of denial. Some people respond with uh, just a a take-charge attitude to their health. They really want to get into the granular details on their medical conditions. Other people just sort of check out and get really depressed. There's all kinds of different responses. I I don't know which one I would take. Uh, A few months ago, I went to a memorial. I helped officiate a memorial for a friend of mine who was 43 and died of cancer, left two young daughters behind. And uh, his brother got up at the memorial and said, you know, I, I know a lot of you guys wanted to be there for my brother when he was dying. And I'm sorry he never texted you back or called you back. He just didn't want to talk to anyone towards the end of his life. And I, maybe that's how I'd respond too. I, I, I don't mean to be disparaging. But I wonder, what, what would you like to be like at the end of your life? If you were to go in hospice today, what do you hope would be your response? As a Christian, as a friend, as a husband, a father, a mother, a daughter, what do you hope you would be like? As we hear God's word today, I hope that we'll hear in it the reason for the hope that we have as Christians, and that as we face the fear of death, we don't approach it without resources and without a confidence in what's yet to come. Well, just a quick orientation to Isaiah. If if this is a book of the Bible you're not real familiar with, last week Jason did a great job bringing us into Isaiah and looking at the first section of Isaiah. Um, Yeah, I agree. Um, (laughs) And the first section of Isaiah, the first 35 chapters, deal with the judgment of God on Israel for their sin. And then in the middle, there's this short historical section where there's two parallel stories, one about a nation's deliverance from their own destruction and then a person's deliverance from their own destruction. That's what we're going to talk about today. And the last part of Isaiah, chapter 40 to 66, looks back later and says, what was it like to be judged by God? And what reason do we have for hope in the future? Well, looking at that middle section a little bit more, we're going to talk about the personal part of God's deliverance. You might remember a few weeks ago when we were in 2 Kings, we talked about Hezekiah once already, and how Hezekiah was the one who was faithful to God and wicked things still happened. How Hezekiah was the good king who did everything right, and the Assyrians still invaded. Hezekiah's life is sort of a monument to the adage that bad things happen to the best sorts of people we have around us. And now it's not just on a national level that this happens to Hezekiah. It's on a deeply personal level. In chapter 38, Hezekiah is faced with the disease that is certain to kill him. And this isn't just medical speculation or prognosis. No, Hezekiah is given the gift, I'll put that in air quotes, of a prophet coming and telling him he's going to die. As we go into the reading, it might help to know that Isaiah has announced judgment like this on kings before, and it's always come to pass. And yet Hezekiah is the best king that Israel has had in hundreds of years, the best king since David. And this is what happens to him in verse 1. 
In those days, Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, came to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, set your house in order, for you shall not die. You shall not recover. Just in, in case die was not clear enough. Now, at this point, if you're Amos, you're wondering like, or I'm sorry, if you're Hezekiah, you're wondering, is this really fair? This is the time, I'm already sick, this is the time the prophet is supposed to come and tell me it'll all be okay. This is the time that I'm supposed to have a reason for hope. And yet God goes to the effort to send a prophet to tell me that I'm going to die. And in verse 2, Hezekiah turns his face to the wall and prays to the Lord and says, Please, O Lord, remember how I've walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. What happens when Hezekiah is at the point of death? Hezekiah's plea is for God to remember his faithfulness. Now, let me just stop here for a minute. I don't think this is meant to be a prescription for what you're supposed to do. If, If you're at this point in the future... The goal is not to call out to God and say, God, I deserve this. I'm I'm just describing what happens. What happens in the story is Hezekiah says, God, you owe me, right? This is the wrong person. This is mailed to the wrong king. You're supposed to do stuff like this to Ahab or Jezebel, not to me. This short scene with Hezekiah really is a model for what uh, the prophets do, what their role is in Israel. They're supposed to call people to repent, out of fear of the judgment of God. But Hezekiah responds with, I'm not the one who needs to repent. What have I even done wrong? Hezekiah is the best king Israel has had in generations. Why is he the one that's supposed to die when he's 39? Why is he the one who's supposed to die without an heir? As we'll see in this passage, a huge part of Hezekiah's journey is going to be confronting this misplaced view of his own righteousness, this elevated sense of his own religiosity and his own virtue needs to be confronted on a deep level. And the best way for God to do this is to remind him of his own mortality. Like the Pharisee who cries out to God in the temple in Jesus' parable, thank you that I'm not like this man. He is forgiven of little. And Hezekiah won't be forgiven of anything until he realizes his own sinfulness. But before we jump to the good news of this passage, before we find out that Hezekiah survives and everything's good and kumbaya and happy ending, and all that. Before we know that, think about the experience that Hezekiah is having in this moment. What would you hear if you heard this? 39 years old, risked everything to bring Israel back to God. He's destroyed idols, he's sacrificed his own resources, he's compromised international treaties, and all of this faithfulness is met with his own fatalistic end. This happens. God sends a prophet not to congratulate him, not to thank him, not to commend him or reward him, but to condemn him. Now, again, you know what's going to happen, right? He's going to live. It's going to be okay. But in the moment, why would God send a prophet to tell Hezekiah something that's not even going to come to pass? This raises so many theological questions, right? Like Isaiah makes really clear, you're going to die. You're not going to survive. One, why does God do that if it's not true? And secondly, Does God change his mind? There's a lot of philosophy and theology that happens in this passage. Let's take these two questions one at a time. What good comes from this? What good comes from scaring Hezekiah about his life? You know, if your doctor did this and said, I'm sorry, you have three months to live, and it turned out you were fine, you know, best case scenario, you'd walk into their office and like spike a football on their desk. 
or you'd sue him for malpractice. But a prophet of God isn't supposed to say things that aren't going to come to pass. What good can come out of this? Well, I think the good is that Hezekiah's view of his own righteousness needs to shift. Because his argument for why he should be cured is that he's a good person, that he deserves to be cured. And he weeps bitterly that that hasn't worked. In fact, Hezekiah's healing is going to change his view of what it means to be valued before God. After he's healed, look, if you look down the next part of the chapter, he composes a song. You can tell it's a, a song or a poem because it's written in a sort of different uh, indent in your Bible. And uh, most of it is him sort of reflecting on the fact that he survived. And towards the end of it, in verse 17, there's this line, that, this verse that I love. Behold, it was for my welfare that I had great bitterness. That's Hezekiah when he hears he's going to die. Because my world was rocked, I was bitter towards God. And that's how, let's be honest, that's how a lot of us respond if we got the news that Hezekiah did. God, this is not fair, and I'm mad at you. Because this is not working out for me, I am bitter towards you, God. But then hear the shift that's in his life. But in love you have delivered my life from the pit of destruction. For you have cast all my sins behind your back. How different is that from how he described himself before? What sins? What sins, Hezekiah? I thought you loved God with your whole heart. You never did anything wrong. But on the far side of God's redemption in his life, he's able to acknowledge the truth of who he is before God, both the good and the bad. And this only happens as a result of God's intervention in this dramatic way. He goes from being someone who says, I don't deserve this, to someone who responds to grace with, I don't deserve this. Is there a problem that God seems to change his mind? No, I don't think so. Because we're, we're talking about prophetic language here. And this is going to be important as you read through the prophets. The prophet's goal is not to predict the future. That's not why the prophets are in the Bible. They're not to try to say that something uh, will never change. The prophet's role in what they announce is to provoke repentance. That's what Isaiah is doing in Hezekiah's life. It's not just to predict what's going to happen, but it's to provoke him to repent. And even though the prophetic language often sounds very severe, like this is not going to change, that's not God's intent. God's intent is this is what will happen if you don't change. You might think of the story of Jonah, right? When, when Jonah goes into Nineveh and says, in 40 days, Nineveh is going to be destroyed. Now, is that a prediction of the future? Yes, unless, what? Unless the Assyrians repent, which they do. And God relents and doesn't destroy them. Now, if you know that story, you know Jonah gets really mad, and he says, God, I knew you would give up, right? You're too nice. But that's God's response, right? As Peter says in 2 Peter 3, the Lord is patient towards you, not wishing that any should, should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God's patient with us as well. And we see in Hezekiah a model for how we should respond to the warning of God in our lives. You know, Hezekiah admirably pleads with God he doesn't just ignore Isaiah's warning, as other kings have done in Isaiah's career. He actually responds to God, throwing himself on God's mercy and weeping before him. So how do you resonate with Hezekiah's weeping? Okay, let, let me, let's think about this together. On the one hand, I certainly want to commend him, because weeping about our fear of death is the most normal, natural thing in the world. As Christians, we can find a lot of hope and a lot of confidence and the fact that Jesus himself weeps over his own coming crucifixion in the Garden of Gethsemane. He weeps over the death of his friend Lazarus. If Jesus can weep over death, we certainly can weep over death as well. The last thing I would want for you is to feel like, as a Christian, you have to push down any fears of death 
or ignore them or repress them in order to have an honest faith before God. Weeping in the midst of death is one of the most important and natural expressions we can have in faith. And um, if you're going through a a life-threatening disease like this right now, one of the ways that our church would love to be helpful to you is we have something called Stephen Ministry. They're trained volunteers who come alongside people in the midst of grief and loss, and they would love to sit with you and listen and pray with you if you're going through something difficult, whether it's medical condition, life situation, whatever. Um, so, so that's on the one hand. Like, I want to commend Hezekiah, but I don't just want to commend him because Hezekiah is not, not the model for us as Christians. See, um, one of the things I hope you've noticed as we've gone through the Old Testament is that we learn things throughout the course of the Bible. The things that are not clear at the beginning of the Bible become clear by the end of the Bible. This is what's called in theology as progressive revelation. It means that there's some stuff that doesn't make sense when it happens in the Old Testament, and even in the beginning of the New Testament, and it only makes sense when we have the whole picture of all of Scripture. And in fact, there are, I'm sure there are some things that will only make sense on the far side of heaven as well. You can think of progressive revelation uh, in one way when we look at the Old Testament and we see how it doesn't seem to know much about life after death. When the Old Testament talks about life after death, it only talks about it in sort of general vague terms, talking about Sheol and stuff like that. But it doesn't seem to have nearly the detail or the insight that the New Testament has. Is that a theological problem? No, I don't think so. That's just God's gradual way of choosing to unveil what's true about the world and about himself. You can think of progressive revelation like baking a cake. I called it cooking a cake at the last service. Apparently, you don't cook a cake, you bake a cake. Um, (laughs) Now, if you were to take some flour and some sugar and some eggs, and you were to just put them in a bowl, maybe maybe crack the eggs, I guess, um, and you were to say, what is this? Say, I don't know. I mean, that, that could be any number of things, right? You've only completed part of the process. That could be any number of baked goods. That could be some trash. I, I, don't, I don't know what you have in mind for this. It's only when you complete the process that we actually know that it's a cake. Um, and what type of cake it is and what it's like and what it tastes like. And I am getting so hungry. And um, <laughs> in the same way with Hezekiah uh, and, and with the Old Testament, we only see the fullness of the hope that we have as Christians after the coming of Christ. Why do I bring this up? I bring this up because Hezekiah's weeping is a natural human reaction, but it's not necessarily the model for us as Christians. We have a different hope than what Hezekiah understood at the time. As uh, the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 2, Jesus' death on the cross was a defeat over the devil, and as a result of that, a defeat over death itself. This is what he says in Hebrews 2.15. Jesus' death frees those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. You hear that? Jesus' death frees us from our own fear of the slavery, our own slavery of the fear of death. As the fourth century theologian John Chrysostom said, he who does not fear death is outside the tyranny of the devil. He who does not fear death is outside the tyranny of the devil. This is, I think, a really important thing to think about. There's a fascinating little book on this topic by a theologian named Richard Beck. It's called The Slavery of Death. And in it, Beck talks about how ever since the fall, ever since um, the result of our sin became our own death, the fear of death can govern us. We become self-serving creatures when we're ruled by our own fear of death. We make everything about ourselves. We try to make a way to make ourselves immortal. It's what's called idolatry. And we become bitter when other people don't gratify our own selfish desires. But as followers of Jesus, this does not have to be our only reality. 
Yes, the fear of death is natural, but it's not all of who we are. We're freed from the slavery of the fear of death because Jesus has already conquered it on the cross. And we're not free, and because of that, we're free from the selfish fear to not serve just ourselves, but to serve others around us. As 1 John 3 says, we know that we have passed from death to life. Why? Because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Beck illustrates this with a uh, scene from the movie Of Gods and Men. Um, it's a movie from the mid-90s. It's a true story, but it's a, a reenactment of a true story about a group of Trappist monks in Algeria during a civil war there in the early, 20th, in the early 1990s. Now, I acknowledge that it was probably not part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, a movie about monks in Algeria, um, but it's a, it's a fascinating scene because these monks spend five years being terrorized and threatened by Islamic rebels who want to drive out all the Christian elements of Algeria. And during those five years, these monks have a choice. Will they continue to lo love and serve their neighbors, mostly, mostly Muslim poor neighbors, and continue to live out of the way of love? Or will fear drive them out of Algeria and back into the safety either of the governmental protection or of Europe? And the movie really tracks these monks' choice. Will they live out of love or out of fear? And one scene that Beck highlights in the movie, it's this really fascinating scene between two of the monks. One's a, a doctor named Luke, and one's sort of the, the head of the order, a man named Christian. And Christian warns Luke that his continued care for the Islamic rebels, his continued provision of medical care for them, could be a danger to him or, or to the order. If he continued to treat these rebels and continue to provide for their medical needs, it could end up coming back on their own head. And this is Luke's response. I think it's really fascinating. Throughout my career, I've met all sorts of different people, including Nazis and even the devil. I'm not scared of terrorists, even less of the army. And I'm not scared of death. I'm a free man. I love that line. I'm not scared of death. I'm a free man. Now, Luke isn't fearless. He's not a fool. He doesn't want to die. But he is free, right? He's free from the slavery that governs so much of our life, which is a slavery of the fear of death. Now, maybe you would have made a different decision if you were in Luke's place. You know, it, they, they warn us in seminary, you're supposed to use illustrations that connect with people's everyday lives, and none of us are Trappist monks in Algeria during a civil war in the early 1990s. <laughs> but, but even if you would have made a different decision or a different set of decisions, I hope that you can hear in there the freedom that comes with not being governed by the fear of death. Now, some of you guys maybe are at a stage of life right now where the fear of death seems very far from your mind. Like, that just seems like something that, that, that old people worry about, not me, right? Um, and I, I can certainly appreciate that. But I would say that for all of us, we live in a culture and in a world that is governed by a fear of death. And it seeps into our bones maybe in ways that we don't even recognize. So if we think, oh, I'm going to live 70 more years, 80 more years, I, I'm not worried about this. We should at least be aware of the way that the fear of death kind of governs the way that the world around us is ordered. And, you know, being young is a problem that solves itself. We'll, we'll all get there eventually. Well, let's get back to Isaiah. You know, when we left, when we left Hezekiah's story, um, back in verse 3, he's pleading with God to intervene, but we've all probably known people that have pleaded with God, or we've pleaded with God on behalf of people who are going to die. And it seems like often God doesn't respond. But this time he does, in verse 4. The word of the Lord came to Isaiah. Go and tell Hezekiah, thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father, I have heard your prayer. 
I have seen your tears. Behold, I will add 15 years to your life. Hezekiah's weeping has been met with God's grace. This is the sort of good news part of the story, right? Where it turns out that Hezekiah is not going to die after all. Isaiah's warning is reversed. Hezekiah's life has been prolonged. God's heard his prayer, and he's going to survive. So how do you respond to that part of the passage emotionally? I mean, there's a part of me that's like, that's great. That's what should happen, right? Young men, and I'm going to consider 39 young because I'm 38, and it makes me feel better. Um, Young, righteous kings who are doing their best to lead God's people, they, they shouldn't die in the midst of their youth. They, they should be able to survive, right? This is what God um, should be doing. This is all is right with the world sort of stuff. And, you know, it's, it's also comforting to know that God hears his prayer and sees his tears. And it gives me hope that he'll hear my prayer and see my tears in the same situation. It gives me hope that, you know, as Jesus says in Luke 12, that even as the the sparrow doesn't die outside of God's eyes. We're worth so much more than the sparrows. That he is going to see and notice my life and my tears. So that's sort of on the one hand, like I'm encouraged by it, but I'm also, there's a part of me that sort of responds with some skepticism. Like, yeah, but God's, why, why Hezekiah's prayer? Why his tears? There's so many prayers and tears that aren't met with this reprieve. What about Hezekiah uh, earns him this sort of capital with you? Well, we're getting into areas of speculation. So the short answer is I, I don't know why God chooses to answer Hezekiah's prayer and not others. But I think there are some hints in verses 5 and 6 that are worth attending to. Why does God respond to Hezekiah? Why does God change Hezekiah's destiny? Well, the first reason he gives in verse 5, he says that he is the God of David, your father. God responds to Hezekiah and says, um, that he is the same God who has preserved David's lineage up to this point, and he is going to be faithful to his promise to one day deliver a Davidic king who will deliver all the people from their sins. So God's faithful to Hezekiah for David's sake. But I think the bigger reason is in verse 6. Let's read, look at verse 6 together. I will deliver you and the city out of the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will defend the city. At the beginning of the sermon, I talked about how Hezekiah's personal story is sort of a parallel with the national story that Israel's facing, right? Jerusalem as a whole is going to have to be miraculously delivered out of uh, the Assyrian army's hands. And the same thing's happening on a microcosm level with Hezekiah's life. This is a little confusing because Isaiah chooses to put these events out of order. He describes the siege of Jerusalem in chapters 36 and 37, and then he describes Hezekiah's illness in chapter 38. So the natural response, if you were to read them straight through, is that Jerusalem comes first and Hezekiah comes second. Actually, historically, that's not what happens. Um, It says here in verse 6, right? It says in verse 6 that I will, in the future, deliver Jerusalem. But didn't that already happen? No, Isaiah's flopped them chronologically, which is part of what makes it confusing. It's about 701 B.C. when uh, Hezekiah's personal health crisis happens, and then it's about 10 years later that the siege of Jerusalem happens. Now, that'll be on the midterm, so I hope you paid attention to that. Um, now, wh- why do you care about that at all? Um, here's why. God tells Hezekiah, essentially, your salvation is a parallel to the people's need for salvation. The reason that you're being saved, Hezekiah, is to lead the people through this process of salvation. It's essentially God setting up a paradigm uh, that'll be fulfilled in Christ, The only way that the people are going to be saved is when the righteous king is delivered from death. Only when the righteous king is able to live 
can the people live? We see that fulfilled in Jesus. We'll, we'll talk about that later. So what happens now that Hezekiah's life is extended? He's given 15 more years. Someone mentioned earlier this morning. Do you think at the end of that he tried it again to get 15 more years, right? And after that, 15 more years, right? We, we don't know. We don't know how Hezekiah responded when he was 54. But it had a huge impact on Hezekiah's faith. Look down at verse 15. What shall I say? For he has spoken to me, and he himself has done it. And then I love this line, and it, this line has stuck with me all week, and I, I can't say I fully know what it means, but it, it's one of those ones that I just keep chewing on. I walk slowly all my years because of the bitterness of my soul. I walk slowly all my years because of the bitterness of my soul. We see in Hezekiah's healing a shift in his character and a shift in his approach to God. A, a, a new humility before God and a, a new sense of what it means to uh, be aware of God's holiness and Hezekiah's lack of holiness. And he kind of reminds me of Jacob. If you guys know in Genesis the story of Jacob, how he wrestles with God and God puts his hip out of place. And as a result of that, he walks with a limp and a sense of humility the rest of his life. I, I think the same thing happens with Hezekiah as a result of this, that there is a sense of um, slowness that comes with maturity in his faith. Or maybe it's this experience that gives Hezekiah the trust and faith to be able to lead Jerusalem through the enormously painful siege of the Assyrian invasion. All right, well, we're reaching the end of the sermon. What, do, what should you take out of Hezekiah's healing? I mean, is this just a matter of, well, if I get a hospice declaration from a doctor, I, I should cry out to God and see if he'll give me 15 more years? Is there a parallel to that that, that we should acknowledge? Perhaps, I mean... I do want you to hear that God hears your prayers and sees your tears, even when it feels like they're hopeless. God does see you and loves you and cares for you. And I think Hezekiah is a good model for how all of us need to cry out to God, knowing that our physical death is in front of us and that it is not the worst death that we face. That just as Hezekiah models a relentless hope that God will do something, that all of us as Christians need to be reminded that God has delivered us not just from physical death, but spiritual death as well. And that Jesus is the reason that we have hope in the face of not just one death, but a death to come. And Hezekiah, in that sense, is a helpful pointer to us of what Jesus is like. You know, Hezekiah calls out to God and says, For, uh, would you heal me? And we see in Jesus a fulfillment of that, right? The one who walks throughout his life with people calling out to him, would you heal me? And like Hezekiah is heard by God, the people are heard by Jesus. And he turns to them and heals them and even delivers their life from the grave. He delivers the little girl back to her parents who's died. He delivers Lazarus back from the tomb to his brother, to his sisters. And just as God hears Hezekiah's prayer and sees his tears, Jesus hears the people and sees their tears as well. And just as God extends Hezekiah's life, Jesus extends the life of the people around him. And just as Hezekiah is a good king, and he wails that it's unfair for him to die, Hezekiah points us to the greater one, the greater king who truly doesn't deserve to die, the young man who dies unjustly for our benefit. You know, later on in Isaiah, um, in Isaiah 52 and 53, we'll talk about this more next week, we hear about one day there will be a suffering servant, a king of Israel, who will deliver the people. 
And the way that he'll deliver the people isn't like Hezekiah before or David before, but they'll do it through their own suffering and through their own pain. And people won't even recognize the cost that that person is paying. In Isaiah 53.8, it talks about the Messiah this way. It talks about Jesus this way. No one cared that he died without descendants, that his life was cut short midstream. That sounds like it's talking about Hezekiah, and then it sounds like it's talking about Jesus. Right? There's a parallel there that I want you to notice. Hezekiah grieves that he's 39 and dies without an heir. And Isaiah says one day there's going to be a better Hezekiah who's going to die at 33 without an heir that will die on our behalf. And just as Hezekiah's deliverance from death is going to save the people of Jerusalem and bring salvation to them, Jesus is the greater Hezekiah, the one who will go to the completeness of his own death and whose deliverance from the grave will bring salvation not just to Jerusalem or Israel, but to every tongue and tribe and nation. And we don't receive just 15 more years of life or 1,500 more years of life. But as the song Amazing Grace says, when we've been there 10,000 years, we'll have no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. We look, uh, we look at Hezekiah's story and we say, oh, I wish we could have 15 more years of life. And Hezekiah's story, when it's fulfilled in Jesus, says we have something so much greater than that. Right? What's 15 years? What's 150 years when it compares to eternity? If we were to cry out to God and say, God, couldn't you just give me 15 more years of life? We'd be wise to listen back to his word and say, oh, he has given us so much more than that. Something that we need so much more deeply than that. As we come to communion today, I hope that it helps us to confront our own fear of death. Because Jesus has died for you, you do not need to fear the grave. Because Jesus is the greater Hezekiah, because he is the righteous king who was cut down too young, we don't need to fear death. We can be saved if we put our trust in him. Like Hezekiah, we need to recognize that we are not as righteous as we think we are. And like Hezekiah, we need to plead with God for our life. Not just a temporary extension, but of eternal life with God. And like Hezekiah, we can have confidence that God puts our sins behind his back because of what Christ has done on the cross. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for Hezekiah's example, the way he pleads with you for his life. God, may that be the yearning and longing of our hearts before you. Not just our physical life, but our spiritual life, knowing that you forgive and save. Thank you that in Christ we have hope. Not just hope for one more year, or 15 more years, or 100 more years, but hope of eternal life. God, I, I pray for my friends who are here who are sick. Um, and maybe who have been told by a doctor that they only have a few years to live. Maybe less than that. God, would you be with them and be with all of us through the process of our physical demise and our death? Remind us of the hope that we have. May we be a church filled with a confidence in you that this life is not all that there is. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, if those who are assisting with communion can come forward at this time. We're going to take the bread and cup together this morning, a fitting time to do so in light of uh, what it says to us and what we need to hear continually in our own soul about...